Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show was recorded in front of a delightful audience at Akud in Berlin, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. Hello to everybody out there in Scotland, Switzerland, Romania, California, and all over the world. Thanks for listening, and please do share us with your friends and rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts, as that helps us reach new listeners, or so they say. We have a scandalous and fabulous story for you this episode, as well as a bonus at the end, and Dead Lady Show co-founder Katie Derbyshire is here to help me introduce everything. Hello, Katie. Hi, Susan. Who is our lady this time around? Well, this time we're going to learn all about the silent screen star, Theda Barra. Uh, she's presented by Alex Berber, who divides her time, as they say, between Dublin and Berlin. Alex is a roving historian and a freelance writer. Excellent. Let's get to know Theda Barra. Thank you so much, that lady show, for having me. Um, I'm going to talk about Theda Berra, or yet, I mean, I'm planning to talk about Theda Berra. Theda Berra, the silent movie star that produced films that returned more money than they were invested into. Um, the original vamp, mortal sin personified, whose name is an anagram for Arab death. <laughs> A woman that in a fool there was, scattered rolls petals over the corpse of a lover she brought to ruin, who in the last masterpiece of Splendor, Cleopatra, portrayed the serpent of the Nile, wearing costumes that were so risque that they inspired the joke, theater bearers getting bearer and bearer, <laughs> and, well, led to the film being censored. <laughs> the woman that demanded John the Baptist had on a platter Zalome and seduced as the she-devil whom in When a Woman Sins performed a dance so provocative that it gave the aged Rue in the film a fatal heart attack. In short, a creature of temptation, lust and sin. The love child of a French artist father and an Arab mother, born a camel stride away from the Sphinx and the pyramids. The woman that listed her interests, you will never believe it, as occultism, green jade elephants, odd jewels, incense, orchids, and music. <laughs> a woman that had been told a dark, looming prophecy on which she was quoted saying, I shan't live very long. I find life so wonderful and so weary that I'll burn myself up, always thinking, thinking, thinking. Soon after I should be 30, I think you will have Theda's pictures, but not Theda. An occult reading had foreseen her early death in 1915. Of course, by the time Theda Barrow, her publicity team, made this comment, she had already turned 30 and had just started a movie career. The prophecy came true, in a way, but in a rather different way. While Theda lived to be almost 70 years old, before passing away in 1955, most of her outrageous films have been lost to the afterworld. But as I said, I came here to talk about Theda Barrow, yet I can't really talk about her without talking about Theodosia Goodman, who is a nice Jewish girl from Cincinnati. Theodosia Goodman was born on July 20s, probably 1885, although she claimed 1890, in Cincinnati as the second child of three. Her father, Bernard Goodman, was a partner in a wholesale closing firm, and her mother, Pauline Louise Francois de Coupé, worked as a wig maker. Thea grew up firmly middle class. She recalls in an essay she penned herself that she always wanted to be on stage. 
recounting how, as a child, she put on shows for the neighboring children, luring them in with the promise and deliverance of cookies and lemonade. She went to New York and performed on stage, successful but not successful enough to be noticed, although she made a name for herself as ambitious in theater circles by 1914. At 30, ancient by the standard of stardom of the time, she decided to leave behind her resentment and disapproval of the shadow world of the movies and tried her luck. Legend has it that while she was looking for work at the nearby movie studio in New Jersey, she met Cecil B. DeMille. He later admitted that he could have kicked himself for failing to take much notice of Theodosia Goodman. Barra claimed later that she started out a star and remained a star, which is partially true. In her first ever seen appearance, Theodosia Goodman is credited as Gangmall. In the Stain from 1914 is one of her few surviving films. The first film that Theodore Barra made was far more exciting. A Fool There Was premiered in 1915 and became a raging success, catapulting Barra to instant stardom. Inspired by a Kipling poem, The Vampire, the film tells the story of a man who, under the influence of Barra's vamp, loses his job, abandons his family, and altogether ruins himself. So um, on the site here, we have publicity shots from A Fool There Was that clearly like mirror the painting. Um, that So the poem is based on a painting and the film was based on a Broadway play. But it's all basically kind of like just down to that picture. But you can clearly see like just the mirroring of um, her as the vamp in kind of like these shots. And she was an absolute nobody at the time. The actress Mary Pickford, who was dubbed America's sweetheart for her roles as wholesome little girls, was quoted in 1916 saying... After Theda Bearer appeared in A Fool There Was, a vampire wave surged over the country. Women appeared in vampire gowns, pendant earrings, and even young girls were attempting to change from frank, open-eyed ingenues... Ingenues! To almond-eyed, carmine-lipped women of subtlety and mystery. The craze swept the nation. Bearer's provocative command, kiss me, my fool, became a catchphrase. Um, basically, what you see is like all you need to know about the film. <laughs> it's, a, it's the meat cute where she gets him to kiss her and he, of course, ruins himself and is completely out of life and probably out of money and she's just disposing of him, basically. The craze also inspired the cosmetic entrepreneur, Helena Rubinstein, to create a special coal pen for theater and other brands cashed in on Barra's fame and the audience craving for the vampire. Um, I have a couple of examples for that. On the far side, there's a compact mirror that kind of like was released, cashing in on her name. There's a painting of, uh, or kind of like a little instructional thing of how to achieve her makeup look. On this side, we have a little essay penned by herself where she talks about how she only goes out at night. And of course, in the middle, the most important one, which is a sandwich recipe for a Theda Berra sandwich, which is described as peppery and spicy. Her role as a vampire also inspired songs. One of them, since Sarah saw Theda Barra, tells of a girl, of a good girl, turning vampire herself after watching one of Barra's movies. And we're going to listen to a quick excerpt from that. Every night, Sarah Cohn would go to a moving picture show. And there she saw upon the screen Miss Theda Barra, the vampire queen. She saw men fall for her devilish smile. They loved her, but she fooled the 
them all the while. Then Sarah said, it's an easy game. I think I can do just the same. Since Sarah Sathita Bera, she became a holy terror. Oy, how she rolls her eyes. Oy, she can hypnotize. With a wink she'll fascinate. And she wiggles like a snake. Yeah, so the song goes on in the same vein. I really do recommend listening to the full song. <laughs> Beres casting as the lead role, simply built as a vampire, in A Fool There Was, which was based on a successful Broadway play, was simple happenstance. Frank Powell, the film's director, is looking for an unknown actress and was impressed by the short brunette's ability to take direction. William Fox, owner of the production studio, was responsible for crafting her public image. After taking Bera under contract, he was quoted as saying... One day, it was conceived in our publicity department that we had every type of woman on the screen, except an Arabian. We dressed her up in the regular Arabian costume and surrounded her with the proper atmosphere, and then the newspaper boys all came in. We said she didn't speak a word of English and gave them her story. The newspaper men left that day and said that the Fox Film Corporation had discovered the greatest living actress in the world. The contract they designed included provisions that barred her from using public transport or attending Turkish baths, <laughs> as well as demanding that she only go out at night and be heavily veiled in public. <laughs> Publicity salt movie tickets and the thought of such an exotic creature blurring the lines between the on-screen character and the real-life actress guaranteed success at the box office. Hollywood regularly erase personal history, but rarely as boldly and with such little concern for credibility as it did with Barra. Fox didn't just give Barra a new name or a new ethnicity, it made her a creature of the underworld. The publicity focused heavily on creating a star that encompassed everything that was perceived as the other. A wild, untamed creature, scantily clad in slipping nightgowns, a woman of such dangerous sexual appetite that her kiss will spell ruin for any man. Uh, of course, there's uh, the famous slipping nightgown. Um, very scandalous, just kind of like waving goodbye to a man that has lost his heart and his wallet in her bed. On, on the other side, of course, another uh, publicity shot for a fool there was with her with like attached weirdly long uh, claw-like fingers. <laughs> There's also a very strong element of Orientalism. By creating her as a non-white, non-Western person, the predominantly white American audience was able to indulge their desire to reaffirm themselves in their whiteness as well as their own self-perceived morality. Fox profited by blurring the lines between Theda Barra, the actress, and her on-screen roles. Later, in 1919, Barra would reflect on her first film in a more sober manner. I have been a vampire of fiction, not fact. With the success of A Fool There Was, I renounced all former expectations of the art of acting. I cut my soul in two. One half I kept for myself, the other half I gave to the movies. It has to be noted at this point that Barra herself is an unreliable narrator of her life. According to multiple sources, she enjoyed the work on her movies very much, even creating most of her own costumes and reflecting meticulously on her performances. Yet in her own words, she called movie studios a chamber of torture to a girl with whose imagination is tainted with the flavour of artistic ideal, and mused on how little fame meant to her. I remember passing a theatre where my name was ablaze in electric lights. A friend with me said, aren't you proud? But I wasn't. Fox Film Corporation were determined to cash in on their new star, which they did. <laughs> so um, another example of kind of like the films she made for Fox is on this side um, is her as Salome. Um, in the middle, it's her in a film called The Destruction. 
And uh, on the other side, it's her as Carmen, wonderfully featuring this little detail on her skirt, which was rumored to have belonged to the couch in her dressing room. And she has ripped it off and kind of like put it on her own dress because she was not happy with the costumes. At the height of her fame, she shot a feature film a month for the studio, most of them typecasting her as some sort of seductive vamp. But as her fame and financial independence grew, her request for non-vamp roles turned into demands. She was cast as a character caring for her blind sister and the two orphans, but the audience didn't appreciate the vamp turning soft. By 1917, Theodore herself announced that for the rest of my screen career, I'm going to continue doing vamps as long as people sin. For I believe that humanity needs the moral lesson and it needs it in repeatedly large doses. <laughs> and the vampire plays the vengeance of my sex upon its exploiters. I have the face of a vampire but the heart of a feminist. <laughs> the statement illustrates her ambivalence. On the one hand, she strove to convey the deeper meaning she saw in her roles and on the other, she readily cultivated the image Fox publicity department had created for her. A widely publicized anecdote tells of an encounter in New York. After Theda had spoken to a child in the street, the child's mother recognized her, screaming, save him, save him, save, save my, the vampire woman has my child, and actually called the police. <laughs> the amount of moral panic Theda was able to entice peaked upon the release of Cleopatra in 1917. Upon the film's opening, the Chicago Board of Censors issued dozens of scenes to be cut out as they were deemed too obscene. The costume, or lack thereof, that Theda had herself helped to create were especially seen as grants for cuts. Fox Studios, sensing the possibility of, of publicity, um, sued the board and Theda herself fight proceeding against its head MLC Funkhauser for slander. Um, so on the, this side we have all the cutouts uh, from Mr. Funkhauser, who uh, takes a great uh, um, pride or kind of like a great, is, is greatly uh, repulsed by the fact that you can constantly see her legs. Um, which, of course, you can see in this beautiful photo of her in um, one of her costumes for Cleopatra. The film became a raging success. According to the studio, it cost half a million dollars, equivalent to around like nine million today, and featured sprawling sets and scenes of large crowds. The last two surviving copies were both destroyed by fire. The first in the 1937 vault fire at Fox, with most of Theatre's other movies, and the fire at the Museum of Modern Art in 1958. All that survives are a few seconds of film, some of the original costume, and a number of still photographs. So uh, we have basically one of the more conservative dresses um, <laughs> of uh, Cleopatra here, a beautiful uh, peacock sash. And of course, uh, one of the dresses that, um, <laughs> yeah, well, would uh, at the time was deemed quite risque, would possibly be still deemed quite risque, even in modern times. <laughs> it's like held together by, I think, a bit of, I don't know, hope and wish. Speaking of which, so um, as I was talking about, there's a couple of seconds of the movie we still have, which is what you can see as a GIF looping here, which is basically all we have. It gives you not really an insight into the story, but it gives you a kind of feeling for her regality and kind of like her movements and all of these things. In the middle, we again have um, her just as the queen. And of course, on the right side, the famous um, uh, snake bra being, <laughs> being, being, being held up by possibly the, the ghost of uh, Vamp's past, I guess. Sadly, the high frequency of her cinematic output combined with her being typecast as a Vamp quickly lost its novelty. The audience's taste shifted and demands for more complex entertainment. Of the 39 films Bearer had made for Fox, only six had cast her in a non-Vamp role. After five years of nearly uninterrupted work, she took her leave from the studio and its screens. 
Her love for the stage had endured. In 1920, she appeared off-Broadway in a play called The Blue Flame. Though reviews called it painfully bad, I encourage everyone to read a New York Times review of this piece. <laughs> it, was, it was a commercial success. She toured with the production and a stardom drew, in, drew people in to see her in a good girl turned vamp role. Despite having the part to silver screen, Theda Bear is not forgotten by the press. In 1920s, rumors ha uh, reported of her having died, her living in a sanatorium manufacturing men's trousers, and having embraced religion, surfaced, and they sold papers. Reality was, of course, rather different. Barra married Charles Brabin in July 1921. Soon after they moved to California, he to direct and she to become a housewife. Um, here are they on their wedding day, and on this side, they're uh, the couple in 1937. Um, the occasion being Basil Rathbone's 11th wedding anniversary, uh, with her husband dressed as Dracula and her as the vampire bride. <laughs> she appeared in two more films and retired, only occasionally dabbling in theatre. Even after she became domestic, there was a small but constant stream of genuine news. Sadly, this included her diagnosis and subsequent fight with stomach cancer. In February 1955, just as Columbia Pictures had bought her rights, the rights to her life story, she was admitted to hospital. She fell into a coma from which she never regained consciousness and died on April 7, 1955. Shortly before her death, she gave the costumes she had worn in Cleopatra, a fool there was in others, to the young daughter of her neighbors, Joan Craig. She had kept them all these years and they survived her and her movies. Theda Barra herself might be largely forgotten today, but she paved the way for the concept of the strong female character, which are kind of like unafraid to use their charms to further their goals. What's quite interesting at this point is um, to have a little look at what impact she had. So we have on the far side here from the New York Tribune 1919, just a little thing about vamps and near vamps that are kind of like basically these women were all modeled on Theda Barra. Then we have down here um, from the 1922 remake of A Fool There Was um, as under the title of The Vamp Revamped. And uh, on this side, we have Virginia Pearson, who, uh, after Theda Berra departed Fox, basically was taken under contract to replace her, but never gained the fame that Theda Berra had. And of course, in the background, that's Marilyn Monroe in 1958, <laughs> dressed up as Theda Berra in Cleopatra. As I said, she's largely forgotten today, which is mainly down to kind of like only four films and like a couple of odd seconds of Cleopatra surviving. But I mean, she's my dead lady. Um, <laughs> and she was basically like Hollywood's first true star, like a man-made star that um, blurred the lines between what is an actual actress and what is, what is a character that was created by a studio. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy that. <laughs> Alex Berber on Theda Berra. The lady was a vamp. The rendition of Since Sarah Met Theda Berra was sung by Lauren Sklam with Ron Schwimmer on piano. Thanks for letting us use that, fellas. And you can find more music from Lauren on SoundCloud, as well as, of course, all the episodes of the Dead Lady Show podcast. So we're launching another new segment this episode. Uh, I'm calling it Living Legend. Does that sound okay? It sounds intriguing. Okay, because we know we like the dead ladies, but sometimes we like a live lady. So um, we're going to introduce an amazing live lady here and tell you a bit about her life so far. Um, so last week, Katie and I were at a concert, <laughs> and uh, I just thought, right, this lady on stage is a living legend, and I want to talk about her on the show. <laughs> her name is... Pauline Black. 
Yes, Pauline Black, the fantastic uh, lead singer for the ska band The Selector, and so much more. Uh, maybe you've heard of a few of the songs she sings. Uh, what are your favorites? Jim, my favorite is Too Much Pressure, but probably what people know best is On My Radio, a great big hit from the very early 80s. This is good. Also, Three Minute Hero. This is a great ah, one. Ah, Three Minute Hero. That one is too fast for me. I couldn't dance. I couldn't keep up with it the other night. It's a good one, though. And uh, there are some, some great new ones also. Frontline is one of them. Um, now, Pauline Black is also a fashion icon. For me, I'd say, though, I can't really emulate her style. Maybe I'm I can't either. No, we're both the wrong shape, I think, yes, Susan. Yes, I'm trying a little bit today. We both have actually our two-tone shoes on, our black and white uh, spectator lace-ups. What would you call them? Brogues, I guess? I call these brogues, yeah. Yeah, and they're patent leather or pleather. Well, yeah, we got our shiniest shoes on today. It's true, and I'm wearing my selector t-shirt. And yeah. yeah, I showed up, and you opened the door, and I was <laughs> taken aback, full of admiration for your fitting outfit but it is nowhere near the style of falling black because she is just dressed to the nines every time uh, natty suits pork by hat uh, though she was wearing a leather jacket when we saw her and of course uh, two-tone dr martin's loafers or some signs grenson shoes we were super we were i was so um, in awe of those shoes very impressive shoes um, this is the second time I've uh, been able to see Pauline Black perform. The first time she was signing her memoir uh, called Black by Design, which we have here because I got us both copies. And um, so what we learn in her life story, it, it's pretty interesting. She was born in 1953 in East London to a white Jewish mother and a Nigerian father who was actually a Yoruba prince. Uh, she was given up for adoption and named Pauline Vickers by her new white middle-aged parents and raised in Essex. You don't really notice what color you are until somebody points it out. And if they point it out in a way that is seemingly not the most perfect thing to be, perhaps, which is the way it was pointed out to me, um, it does make you then begin to think, well, is there something wrong with being black um, in this particular uh, society in my town? And uh, how am I going to deal with this? So thus began my story, really. Pauline Black in a 2015 interview with NPR. So Pauline was the only black kid in her school, but she studied hard, uh, excelled at academics, uh, which also further distanced her from her adoptive parents. She went on to university in Coventry, which is an important part there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, she studied science and then radiography, uh, still the only black student. Now music was her companion. She taught herself to play guitar and started singing in pubs on the side. Pauline's career as the future queen of ska began in 1979 when she joined the group in progress called The Selector, which featured a diverse lineup and became one of the key bands in what's known as the two-tone movement, which we'll come back to. And that's when she changed her last name to Black. So she said it's so her parents would have to acknowledge what she felt was the elephant in the room. But practically, it was also to keep her day job colleagues from finding out about her moonlighting. <laughs> so the Selector songs are fun and lively, but they are also political. They touch on racism, sexism, and police brutality, for starters. When the Selector was at its peak, there was also racial tension in Britain. So, Katie, you were... Uh, a bit young at this I had a little kid, <laughs> period yeah. but um what was england like at this point 
Yeah, there was a lot of tension bubbling under. There were riots in 79 and 81. It was, I come from London and there were a lot of exciting subcultures kind of moving along from punk. The interesting thing was that they were, the the two-tone movement was mixing Jamaican music and, and punk into this kind of fast ska, but it was kind of picked up on by a weird mix of kids who were into it. Uh, because there was a lot of violence, there was unemployment, there was plenty to be aggrieved about, and um, there were bother boys turning up to two-tone concerts, and there was fighting in the dance halls as the special sang. It was important, I think, for those bands to take a political stance and to say, no, look, we're, we're not having any racism. And Pauline Black has really continued to do that to this day. She's really been a champion of multiculturalism in the UK which still isn't necessarily an accepted state of affairs, multiculturalism. She writes about playing on stage on a day when the then Prime Minister David Cameron had declared multiculturalism a failure, which was just a slap in the face of pretty much everyone I know and everyone in her audience as well. Before the Cameron years, as you said, she had some trickier audience members. Um, You said Bavra Boys. What are those? Ah! Bother Boys were kind of violent skinheads who might have been going to listen to the music, but they were also going to get in a fight, yeah. Now, Selector has not been uh, going on straight since it started. The band split in 1982. Then Pauline Black worked as an actor, a television presenter. She played Billie Holiday on stage. She wrote a memoir, which we've uh, got a lot of info from, and released a solo album as well. And then the Selector reformed in the 1990s and has been active ever since, more or less. Um, (laughs) They keep putting out albums. The most recent one is called Daylight. It came out in October. They are currently touring Europe, so see them if you have the chance. You will not be disappointed. Pauline Black has also been touring with the Gorillas. She, yeah, she was on the tour in Latin America. She's 64 years old. She's fit as can be. She's amazing. Yeah, amazing woman. We have got loads of music links and pictures for you of Pauline Black, the selector, and of course, more info about our dead lady in this episode, Theta Berra. That's all on our website, deadladyshow.com. The ska song you've been hearing is Mi Verdad by Los Sundayers off the album Eterno Domingo, which they graciously share via Creative Commons. That's it for the show. We'll be back with another episode next month. Until then, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dead Lady Show. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, and PRX. If you'd like to get in touch, drop us a line to info at deadladyshow.com. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Susan. And thanks to all of you for joining us. See you next time. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.